I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. I never got home, those, those, those boys. Good morning and welcome to a brand new series of Second Captain Sunday. If it's your first time hearing the show, we should probably introduce ourselves here. Owen McDevitt with Kieran Murphy and Ken Early. Hi, Hello fellas. There, Owen. How are you? How are Pretty you? Pretty good, thank you. Yeah, if you did listen to the show last summer but can't quite remember what it's about, that's all right. It's just gone 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. It's quite early on. Yeah, nobody's expecting it to be fully switched on just, just yet. So to jog your memory, this is what we're going to be doing every week for the next couple of months. We'll be bringing you some of the biggest names in movies, music and comedy to talk about whatever's going on in their own lives. But each of them must also be prepared to reach deep into the darkest recesses of their memories to share with you the pain and to a much lesser extent the glory of their little known sporting much careers. Extent, much lesser fact, extent, yeah. Murph. Yeah. Give us a quick recap first on some of the sporting highlights of our guests from last summer. Yeah, so every week we'll be evaluating the respective sporting credentials of our star guests in our This Sporting Life slot on uh, to see who is Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person sports person. After last year's run, Pike Fisherman and sometime comedian David O'Darty <laughs> and Wicklow minor hurling legend Darrell O'Brien launched brave bids but were beaten out to top spot by eventual 2016 champ Gabby Gymnast in 1991 Leeds entered in, in the Rose of Tralee Logan with poor old Lenny Abrahamson oh, Lenny. propping up the rear but uh, 2017 is a new year we've wiped the slate clean and uh, Maeve Higgins this morning has a chance to set the pace will our guests lie about their sporting abilities like the late Kim Jong-il who apparently shot 38 under par in his first <laughs> ever round of golf or will they showcase their talents with pride like supreme athletes Justin Trudeau and Leo Varadkar in the Phoenix Park during the week we await with almost unbearable anticipation yeah first up today as you mentioned to put a score on the board is a Cork woman who's doing more than okay for herself in New York when she isn't busy appearing on America's biggest comedy sketch show Inside Amy Schumer you can find her co-hosting the Star Talk Science Programme on National Geographic or trying to make sense of the immigrant experience in Trump's America on her own podcast. Delighted to say we have got Maeve Higgins on the show this morning. Speaking of Trump, Ken, what did you make of his performance at the G20 Summit during the week? Well, it actually wasn't his performance uh, that people were impressed by. What, what, Putin's? It was the performance of his daughter, Ivanka, who (laughs) who nobody was expecting to uh, have a serious role to play, but who ended up sitting in for President Trump. Just a little cameo there yesterday. Yeah. Uh, partnership with Africa, migration and health was the subject of the discussion at the time when Trump um, had Ivanka sit in for him. Um, I mean, we were saying this, this is a bit inappropriate. I mean, everyone else around that table, you know, you had people like Vladimir Putin, Theresa May, Angela Merkel, all elected uh, heads of government. Um, is this a bit insulting to them? It's actually though more insulting to all of the other officials in the US delegation. Because it turns out that Ivanka Trump now outranks them. And uh, if you're wondering why they have so many leaks, this might be a good uh, <laughs> indicator of why some people aren't, aren't happy. It's, I mean, I, you do wonder what the others sitting around there thought, thought of it. I mean, Vlad, Vladimir Putin was sitting there. I watched his interviews recently with Oliver Stone. You know, Oliver Stone did these four hours of interviews, like yeah. this kind of Frost Nixon type thing, um, which, okay, is, I mean, Putin comes across quite well. You could say it's a propaganda, as a propaganda piece, it's, it's quite effective. But he does say at one point, he's being asked, uh, who, who do you want to win the election? This is kind of the US election. This is filmed maybe 10 months before. And he's asking Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. And he doesn't give a preference. What he does say is it doesn't really matter who wins. Um, you, in your country, the, the presidents change. The policy never changes because there are things those candidates will only find out when they become president, at which point they'll realize, oh, I can't actually do a lot of the things. Like did Obama close Guantanamo Bay? He said he was going to eight years later. He didn't close it. So the weight of the bureaucracy is very heavy. He's saying this, uh, the government is so big 
and so kind of established that the president just sort of has to do what he's told. I wonder if he still thinks that now. This very heavy bureaucracy he's talking about apparently can't provide an official who can elbow Ivanka Trump out of the way <laughs> when it comes to sitting in at a, at a conference with world leaders. We'd love to hear from you. If you fancy getting in touch, you can text us 51551, tweet at Second Captains. There's a huge crowd expected to fill out Semple Stadium in Thurless later today. It's a total today. sellout on, yeah. Total sellout now, yeah, with Cork and Clare playing in the Munster Hurling final. Thankfully, in these days of online ticketing, the GA can avoid the kind of <clears throat> unfortunate incident that marred the fixture 40 years ago when they fell victim Murph, to the great GA armed robbery of 1977. Yeah. Uh, Donald Foley wrote in the Irish Times the following morning, the day after the Munster Hurling final of 1977, uh, the article begins Will all guards report here in a hurry A voice said over the microphone At Simple Stadium Thurless yesterday Which is a great lead You have to say <laughs> uh, It was 4.45pm Only minutes after half time In the tempestuous Munster final Between Cork and Clare Immediately a number of Gardaí In blue shirts Began to move urgently From all parts of the stadium To the back of the stands Some took the news philosophically And simply walked middling fast There were others Who could not be dragged from the game uh, What had happened uh, on was that over £24,000 in gate receipts had been stolen from underneath the stand at Thurlis. Uh, a daring raid that featured three masked thieves, a potential have-a-go hero, a nine-year-old boy and a to-this-day unsolved mystery. So Cork won the match, the money was never recovered and it remains one of the stranger Munster Hurling finals on record. We're going to tell the full story of that one later on today with your Uncle Jim, who also happens to be Jim Carney, presenter of the first ever Sunday game on RT. We're not just ringing up random <laughs> family, <laughs> family members here. here. Yeah. You can tweet at Second Captains, text 51551, email secondcaptains at rt.ie. Maeve Higgins is on the way. This is Second Captain Sunday. Yes, Seasons there by Future Islands who played all over Ireland this week and adorably hid loads of free tickets in various places around Limerick, Galway and Dublin for their sold out shows. They'd tweet where they had left the secret tickets. Yeah, for I example, saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Phil Innes <laughs> statue in Dublin and then people would leg it there to try and get there first. No reported punch-ups either, which is good. No, that's always good as well. As we behaved we uh, impeccably as a nation so I'm, I'm glad to report that. They also played their Dublin Encore in Ireland soccer jerseys and dedicated a tune to the injured Seamus Coleman. So uh, boy did they <laughs> yeah, great job, future islands. Text in here, listening from the lonely rock of Skellig Vahil, where I've been temporarily exiled for the summer. Can the cartoon bird say hi, says Mark off Kerry, who remembers oh, wow. last summer's show. That's amazing. That makes me feel good. It was this time last year you were talking about the puffins in They Skellig look like Vahil. cartoons. Mm. They, yeah, they must be there now, um, uh, swarming across the island like ants. Well, big, cute, floppy ants. <laughs> All right, it's time to introduce the first guest of a brand new series of Second Captain Sunday. She's a comedian, broadcaster, New York Times writer and presenter of the wonderful podcast Maeve in America. All the way from New York City, it's Maeve Higgins. Hi, Maeve. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> Here I am coming from... <laughs> yeah, hi, lads. How are you doing? You all right? Good, very good. Yeah, lovely to chat with you. A happy belated 4th of July, we should probably say. What did you get up to? Well... I didn't do a lot. Like, I, you know, now I feel bad. I live really near this really big park in Brooklyn <laughs> and I went to a picnic in the park and that was really fun because, you know, every type of person was there. That's <laughs> really lovely. <laughs> like, there was literally, it was kind of like somebody from Central Casting had visited. Like, there was, like, girls in hijab playing volleyball and then there was, <laughs> you know, old Puerto Rican granddads, like, dancing with their grandbabies and then there was, like hipsters, you know, of every shade. So, yeah, I that's what I did. I just went to the park. I'm probably trying to make it sound better than it was. But it was <laughs> a fun afternoon and I just tried not to get sunburned. <laughs> Is it starting to feel like starting? You've been there a few years now. Does it feel like home now? 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like Cove, but um, <laughs> where I'm actually, which is actually my home. And I still say like, I'm going home when I mean like I'm going to Cove. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do feel like I live here now. I just got my second three-year visa and stuff. So I love it, you know, I love living here and I feel really lucky that I live here actually, even though obviously things are demented um, politically. Yeah. But I think New Yorkers are great and I do think it's a good place to live still. What brought you over there in the first place, Maeve? Um, I guess I was living in London and I didn't, I wasn't getting on well there. <laughs> and then I, was, I always had a romantic idea about moving to New York specifically and like being a writer here, you know. Um, and then I got a visa and I was just like, oh, I'll just try it. Um, so it was kind of as simple as that, really. What was the situation in London? I mean, I guess if you ask most people what European city was most like New York, a lot of them would probably say London. So, yeah, uh, you know, what's the difference? I don't know. I think um, it's kind of good as a writer to get to be further from home than London. Like, you know yourself, like London is an hour on a flight and I would always find myself going back to Ireland and I didn't feel I had any separation really. Um, plus, you know, the difference that I find between New York and London is that like people here in New York are really curious and open and very friendly. And uh, I didn't find that in London. Well, this yeah. is a, yeah, that's the big challenge, whatever about work, which At is obviously going the risk going of stirring up the ancient animosities between the countries. <laughs> oh, here we go. Another 800 years. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. when we thought we had it sorted, Miv. <laughs> So essentially it comes down to making friends, which is, I think a lot of people could empathise with that difficulty when they emigrate and they try to make a new life for themselves. Mm -hmm. You've made, according to John Ronson, one of your colleagues and friends in New York, you've made millions of friends in your few years. (laughs) Literally millions, I think. So what's the secret? (laughs) So John is a friend of mine who um, is like, I guess, an introvert. And so he, not that he finds it hard to make friends, but he's definitely baffled by like, people who find it easy. Um, When I first moved here, I was like, okay, I'm not going to let what happened in London like happen here. I'm going to make new friends. And like, I think something that's that's amazing about Ireland um, is that like you have your friends, right? I mean, look at you like. <laughs> like you have your friends and you do everything with them. Well, friends, and, from, like, friends who, from work, Maeve. I wouldn't go too we're, far. We're colleagues. <laughs> do you want to do a show together? <laughs> um, but like, I think at home, it's just like, you know, you have who you went to primary school and secondary school. But here I was like, I am going to choose like my friends. And so I got, I think I sent a general email around being like, do you know any amazing people in New York if so set me up with them and then I kind of brutally went and met with everyone I could and then like chose the best ones to make my gang (laughs) and not like a gang gang not like what's our weapon going to be what's our tattoo going to be but like just people people who are like um you know who are really better than me that's who I was looking for. Yeah, as a romantic writer in America idea that you mentioned there, writer in New York, has it lived up to what you'd hoped? Yeah, it's funny because I'm right now I'm writing a book, you know. I got a deal with Penguin and I'm writing a book and I'm like, that's what I wanted to do. But of course, the reality is like, I'm just going crazy. It's such a, it's a book of funny essays. But um, I think the hardest thing for me is to like get what's in my head out of my mouth onto a page and just like say what I mean and 
obviously you're on your own and you're facing up to like what's bad about you what's good about you what you know where you stand on things and also trying to be funny and and brave about it you know I shouldn't complain but I do think it's very hard As a female writer and comedian are you able to do things over there that you you might not be able to do at home in Ireland? Um get jobs <laughs> <laughs> that's a start <laughs> um, yeah I mean I think probably there's there's you know a lot of sexism here too and whatever um, but yeah I mean there's definitely way more opportunities for me here um, than there is in Ireland you know definitely I mean there's more opportunities for everybody but I think maybe here they're a bit um, further along I have heard you say that before, that women's voices aren't valued as much as men's in Ireland. That's something you still feel, obviously. Yeah, I say it and then a man repeats it and then people pay attention. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Men don't repeat it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, totally. I mean, I, it was something for the first few years of my career doing comedy at home that I wouldn't talk about and people would be like, what's it like being a female comedian? Yeah. And I'd be like, I don't know. I've never been a different type, you know, kind of glib. Um, but then I suppose as time passed and I've been doing this now for 10 years, so I can see the patterns and it's just, um, I suppose that like, you know, there's a wage gap in every industry, but um, definitely male voices are more like treasured and they're really like male egos are more pandered to in Ireland than than female ones, you know. I'm glad that I'm a woman and I think it's, and I really love being a woman and um, I think it gives me like a perspective that obviously that men don't have. Um, so... I'm glad of it, but I'm also, it's really tiring. And also I feel like, oh, I have to think about this and battle this and talk about this when my male counterparts can just like do whatever they want. Um, But I do think it's important to point it out every now and then um, because it just gets forgotten. I even forget sometimes. Hmm. I get cross with myself for not doing better. And then I think, oh, but wait, there's like a system that's working against me here. And that makes me feel a bit um, stronger. How do the patterns that you're talking about work in that industry? Because I mean, I have no idea how the, you know, how, how people get jobs in stand-up comedy, you know, how it works on a kind of an economic level. When you mentioned you see these patterns, what kind of things are you talking about specifically? So, I mean, it's like giving specific examples, like it's kind of tricky when it's this overall thing. I mean, I get one example is when I was a young comic, um, an older comedian who was like doing really well was like oh you know what I was going to book you to be my support act but like I didn't want people thinking there was something going on between us and at the time at the time I was like oh fair enough Um, but now I'm like wait a second I lost that opportunity because he was so you know short-sighted and wrong-headed and sexist Um, and so things like that and then I guess it's just um You know, comedy too is a tricky one, lads, because like, I feel like it's been male dominated forever. So like already going out there, people might have preconceptions. Um, So that's something that you have to, that you have to kind of fight to. Um, It's just different if you're a woman, like things are, you're just treated differently and you're not um, valued as much. Do you make, as your career progresses, are you making a conscious effort yourself to get more women involved in saying the projects that you've been working on? You know, it's funny, like, the people who ask me for career advice are pretty much always women, younger women. And often the answer is, like, um, 
they are looking for permission to do something and you know to and I'm talking about like to write a web series or like even get up on stage once like small things that I think a lot of men don't think twice about which is cool and which is how it should be um but yeah I think I always respond to women who want advice from me and I also do on a practical level, you know, write pieces for them, write roles for them and cast them when I can recommend them to festivals and recommend them to um, like to producers, you know, and I think that's very, that's very important and um, that's very uh, like doing practical work instead of just noting uh, the system and complaining about it is good. More people are kind of cottoning onto it now. I feel like here um, there's, you know, there's been a lot of women in comedy breaking through. Um, it can't really happen just with women doing it by themselves. Like, I think that we need our, we need men to um, to help too, you know. You've had two series of this Maven America podcast, which I mentioned earlier on, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, why did you decide to do a podcast about immigration in America? It's not as if there's much going on in that sphere at the moment. <laughs> I know. Like, I, you know, I started developing it with my producer during the, I guess, the presidential election campaign. Donald Trump, you know, he came out, I think, the first day that he announced his candidacy, he called Mexicans rapists and, and he very early on called for a Muslim registry and... But we had been talking about it before that. So it wasn't like a reaction to him, even though the timing was crazy because the first episode came out like just a week after his inauguration. And I decided to do it because obviously, because I'm an immigrant here myself. When I got here like years ago, I was straight away struck by like, how relatively easy my trip was, me getting a visa and like me moving here. I was lucky to get the O1 visa, which is kind of an artist visa. You know, there's like astrophysicists sitting in refugee camps in Jordan and they can't get a visa, you know. Um, so that kind of disparity was really interesting to me. And like meeting like there's a huge undocumented community here who they're basically American, right, in like every way. Like they moved here when they were one or two, but they don't have their papers. And I have so much, so many more rights than them and so much more um, say in like my life than they do in theirs because they don't have papers. So they're kind of in the shadows. Also, like I definitely gravitate towards other immigrants just from a storyteller's point of view or a producer's point of view. There's literally a journey there, right? Like they've made a journey. They've left one life behind. They're starting a new life. That's already interesting to me. Are these people generally, the immigrants that you speak to, are they worried about, is their biggest concern about the big picture stuff, about the visa, about becoming uh, documented or is it the day-to-day attitudes and maybe a shift in date in, in attitudes towards them over the last 12 months or so? A bit of both. Obviously, um, you know, I- immigrants, it's it's such a huge term, right? Because, mm. like, you know, I'm an immigrant and then also, like, a, you know, a child migrant from Ecuador who doesn't have papers, who was sent through one family member to another. She's an immigrant. <laughs> so there's so many different stories. But I would say that... Um, it's definitely the fear factor has definitely ratcheted up and for good reason too because there's been um you know a spike in hate crimes um there was that poor indian man in kansas was killed um mr kochi butla who you know the guy who who killed him thought he was an iranian and he was indian he's here in h1b which is um 
a much talked about visa now. It's kind of what a lot of tech people come in on and Trump has something against it and he's just already uh, made changes to it. Um, so, yeah, I think the hate crimes are affecting a lot of brown people and for good reason. Um, and then um, things like, I think, undocumented people... There's a lot more fear here and immigration raids are stepping up too. It's funny, on my way here to the studio, I just met like the Brooklyn DA. He's like, um, he was just in the subway doing an event. And I was like, what are you doing for immigration? I don't even have a vote, like. Yeah. But um, I was like, what are you doing for immigration? He was like, we're going to get, like, we're going to get the courts. Because right now in immigration court, you have no right to an attorney. So there's all these people who don't even speak English, who are in this really complex system and they're getting deported on fairly just because they're not able to state their case and they mm. don't have any um, legal representation. So that's a frightening development, I think. One of the the premise, or at least one of them is, of the podcast, as far as I can see it, is to humanise immigrants. This is something you've spoken a bit about, to put a face and a voice behind, as you say, what is mm. a massive word, immigrant. Now, I, in an ideal world, that premise wouldn't exist and you wouldn't need to do this, but it does and you do. And you speak to some really interesting people. There's a Syrian refugee from Homs, for example, uh, Zaza, I believe is the fellow's name, who you might be able to yeah. tell us a little bit about his story and how he ended up in New York City. Yeah, um, no, thanks for asking me because like <laughs> even when I'm talking about like the courts and like the numbers, it just sounds so big, right? It just sounds so like political and monolithic. But yeah, the, there's all people behind this. He's a Syrian asylum seeker. Mohammed Zaza is his name, but he goes by Zaza because there's like so many Mohammeds. <laughs> so like I think if your name is Mohammed, it's kind of like being called like John Paul if you're my age <laughs> or like JP or... Pope or whatever they were called. <laughs> all the lads all the lads like, lads were called. He definitely died in thirteen eighty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um so he's from Homs, which has been decimated, you know, terrible stories of like what happened to his friends and what um and his family and how split up everyone is and he has this awful tragic history and present, basically. And if he was back home and if there wasn't this horrific war and if his leader wasn't a crazy dictator, then he would just be like living his life, like having a nice, you know, middle class existence, hanging out with his friends and just he's just like a really chill guy who loves football. And but instead he's, um, you know, he's been just thrown into this, the life of an asylum seeker, which is like tons of waiting, tons of uncertainty. And it's really... um. I don't want to say it's humiliating. I don't think he's humiliated, but it's very humbling. And um, I don't know, this other guy too that I interviewed on the show, his name is Yossi and he's like a spoken word poet, which I usually like hate that. <laughs> but he's actually really good. Um, and he's really witty and he's like this gay guy and uh, he's an advocate for his community. But like, it's amazing to see his life, which like, he just loves like being creative and like going to parties and like his Instagram is like really funny. But then there's this other big part of his life that like we don't have to face because we're not in that kind of trouble because we are just lucky. His grandmother carried him across the desert when he was three years old and he ended up in America through no choice of his own. He knows nobody back in Mexico anymore and he didn't choose this, but he's just like living with it. And that's 
kind of amazes me that that American story of immigration is so much to do with just luck and chance, you know. Just wondering what the role of Irish immigrants is in all this, Maeve. I've seen you describe Irish people as uh, in America as a classic example of a group of immigrants who pull up the ladder after ourselves. Maybe as evidenced by the amount of Irish Americanness in Trump's inner circle at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of them, right? Kellyanne Conway, Sean Spicer, I think Steve Bannon has some Irish in him. Mike Pence famously treasures his, like, Irish grandfather and, like, uses his story as, like, a, you know, he came from nothing and pulled himself up by his bootstraps, like, completely ignoring the fact that his when his grandfather came in, there was no need for a document. You could, it was an op, it was open borders, <laughs> which is something that he complains about all the time now. Um, and Paul Ryan too. You know, there it's kind of extraordinary to see all these Irish names and uh, and not just names like they their Irish heritage means something to them. And um, and you know to see them cutting famine relief and to see them banning refugees, it's just rich. You know, it's really rich. Um, so, but they're, that's not, I don't think they represent Irish America fully, um, but I do worry about the gap between Irish America and then Ireland itself, you know, um, because I feel like at home, I mean, a good example, I think, of the d- the division between the two is the St. Patrick's Day Parade, you know, um, I think it was only the year before last that the Fifth Avenue St. Patrick's Day Parade was like the biggest parade in New York every year. And yeah. um, they allowed gay people to march under their own banner for the first time, just like two years ago, which is the same year that like Irish people voted for equal marriage. <laughs> like it's such a big gap, you know, in kind of the idea of Ireland and then the, the reality of Ireland. Um, so that does, yeah, that worries me. And it also, you know, I do feel a bit of like, oh God, lads, you don't represent me. Well, maybe we've covered immigration there, a bit of politics. So that's the fluffy stuff out of the way. After the break, it's time to get serious. <laughs> We're going to go deep into the successes, the failures, the highs and the lows of your criminally underappreciated sporting career. <laughs> Up next, it's This Sporting Life of Mae Viggins. You're listening to the first episode of a brand new series of Second Captain Sunday with Owen, Ken and Murph. 51551 is the number to text. You can tweet us at Second Captains. DK has been in touch to say, what about Trudeau's speech this week, lads? He mentioned that between May and October 1847, more than 38,000 refugees arrived in Toronto from Ireland fleeing the famine. Toronto had a population of just 20,000 at the time. Imagine how much of an impact that must have had on people's lives there. May Viggins in New York, have you been following Justin Trudeau's trip to Ireland Yeah, this week? I mean, he's just so handsome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm being facetious. Um, yeah, I mean, you know who's my favourite Canadian? Chris Hadfield. Oh, yeah, and yeah. he's so into Ireland too. And I met him because I was doing this like Star Talk, which is a science comedy show. And he was hosting it and he could not say enough about Ireland. And he's like the coolest man. He's had two like space missions. He's the one who sang, you know, David Bowie in space and sent down the videos. Yep. And uh, yeah, so I think Canada and Ireland, like, and Canada are such a good example of, um, I think they get a lot of credit, but they just definitely deserve some credit for how they've, um, how they've responded to the Syrian refugee crisis, you know. I think Ireland could definitely learn a lot, a lot from them. Because also we're closer to Syria, right? And we have um, responsibility, like, handed down to us from the EU and just from, just by being human beings um, to respond better to these Syrian people who are who need us you know 
the time has come, Maeve, to talk about your sporting achievements. Don't worry, you don't have no! to be you don't have to be a world champion and just a high achieving professional sportswoman is fine. fine. So That's I presume fine. you've got some rather, sort of I would rather talk about Syria. <laughs> Another fifteen minutes on Syria would be just fine. Okay, well listen, you're from Cork and the Munster yep. Hurling final is on today. So there's gotta be some sort of hurling or yep. camogie in there somewhere, no? My sister plays camogie. It's funny. I have a huge family and um, my younger sister, Aggie, who uh, isn't my biological sister, but uh, she's she's my sister. She plays camogie and she's brilliant at it and she cares so much about it and we go to her matches, but none of the rest of us play. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I support. I support the work. <laughs> With a big family like that, I would have thought sport is the perfect vehicle for your parents to get you all out of the house. They must have used other I know, methods. I feel like we could have been a team. Is yeah. there any team with eight, with like eight players? Hmm. That's one to think about. Well, there are, se- yeah. there are seven aside tournaments. I mean, That's you could, seven though, Mercy. Yeah. yeah. Well, so one I of you is going to have to be a sub then. <laughs> no, I would happily be the sub. Is that like the person who makes the sandwiches at the side? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some subs can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you live in Zimbabwe for a while? Was there any sport there? <laughs> yeah, we lived. We, so like, like my sporting history has been failing like in different continents because like at home we we had to do hurling in school that was like part of PE I suppose and um we and I didn't like it then I mean I just I didn't like the running and I didn't like the um team aspect <laughs> and we famously have buck teeth in my family like all of us do so if you can imagine six little girls with rabbit rabbit teeth and so my parents were like you have to wear a helmet this is before like this is like 1987 or something right. I suppose before when helmets were still like not cool and <laughs> <laughs> um, when it was like do you want to really be a hurler um, so but my parents were like you have to wear helmets and we were like no Rami please don't make <laughs> But we had to because our teeth were like so sticking out. So for Christmas, and this feels like a punishment more than a present. For Christmas, like we all had to stand in a line in front of the tree. And then my parents like crept up behind us and jammed these helmets (laughs) on our heads as like a happy Christmas. Because I suppose they were probably like 40 euro or something. Like they're like expensive. So that that was a, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. So they were like, here's your present. You're welcome. Now you can do something that you really hate while wearing something that you hate even more. (laughs) Hold on, you said you you failed internationally. What about where... What was the Zimbabwe Oh yeah, failure? so then we moved to Zimbabwe when I was nine and I was so happy to like get away from um, hurling. And then in in Zimbabwe, um, it was like even worse because first of all, it's really sunny there because it's sub-Saharan Africa. And also we were like in this, we played um, rounders. It's like baseball, Softball, cricket. Softball, cricket. But also it's so, so much running. Only I if you hit furious. the ball, though. You don't have to do a huge amount. If you just keep missing, then you yeah. shouldn't have to do too much running around the bases, at least. Although just if you're forlornly back to the yeah. dugout. Yeah, I mean, I suppose any sport that lets me walk forlornly, that's my sport. <laughs> <laughs> I should have embraced it more when I had the chance. But yeah, I'm... Um, I mean, I knew you were going to ask me about sport and I started to panic almost immediately and just try and think. And I'm just like, 
I wish I was sportier, you know, for tons of reasons. Like, I wish I had abs. I wish I could talk to people that I don't have anything else in common with. You know, it's such a good... (laughs) Like, I sound like such a snobby bitch, but like, it's such a good leveler, guys. Like when my, you know, um, but it's true because last year I did this workshop in Iraq, right? Like I went to Erbil and I was doing a comedy workshop. And while I did have like comedy in common with all of my peers over there, um, what they wanted to talk about was like Man United. And I just wished I knew enough, like even just had like a base level. Like I was just like, doesn't David Beckham play for them? <laughs> like, I just didn't yeah. know. But, like, I think when you know, when you care about something like that, then it does connect you to, like, people that you don't normally um, have a connection with otherwise, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I've just finished reading your book, actually, Off You Go, and you speak uh, <laughs> about a particularly harrowing sporting experience that you had at a place <laughs> called Soul Cycle. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was it was unbel- uh, like I've, I, I should try and I suppose explain it briefly. Please do. Uh, it seemed like the worst gym experience in history. So uh, it's described. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you used this this description or whether they did, but described as a spiritual cardio party, <laughs> uh, a spin class in the dark that is unbelievably expensive, but at the end of which you're supposed to have been spiritually cleansed of all of your negative chakras and energy and all the rest of that old nonsense was it yeah yeah i think that definitely the first part of what you read was their description and it's been like wildly successful for them the classes are like 35 dollars each i think and yeah you go in it's really dark there's candles lighting and then the the leader or like the class leader is illuminated and and shouting and making like very kind of sexual grunting noises the whole time in between saying to you like this is in you like you can do only you dig deep. you know it's like um it's like the worst parts of yoga and but and I like yoga but what I mean is like when individualism meets yoga like when they're like you can harness the power of Buddha to like make your company you know yeah, in the Fortune top 100 like yeah, yeah. yeah exactly um, so it's like this gross mix of like ultra competitive like New Yorkers and um, like fake spirituality mm. and, and it you- is the, the yeah, guy, the, the fitness instructor described herself as a fitness instructor, DJ and guru, which I particularly love. <laughs> they're trying to, they're like saying like we're tapping into like this deep part of you. Bear in mind, this is like, these are like exercise bikes, but they're like, we're tapping into this like deep part of you, this like self-belief, like this kind of, you know, uh, holy connection that you have with the world. And we're going to like use it to make you sweat and like lose two pounds. Maeve has been incredible modest about her sporting prowess I can't help thinking that there is plenty to work with here let us now rank this sporting life of Maeve Higgins you don't understand I could have had class we don't have stars in this game Mrs Weaver what do you have then people like me I could have been a contender I could have been somebody I'd like to introduce the this sporting life grand marshal our independent adjudicator for 2017 Kieran Murphy Murphy Hello, Owen, and uh, thank you for the honour, first of all. Uh, uh, much like a head start on a punishing 
uphill run, our first guest of the series, Maeve Higgins, has a chance to demoralise her This Boarding Life foes right out of the gate with a blistering start here this morning. So you may recall that last year we focused on some key areas, our guests' all-time sporting highlight, their sports knowledge, and any other information that we can feed into the hopper before we arrive at a highly scientific number out of 100, which will inform future generations of our guests' worthiness and sustainability to lead. So our first category is all-time sporting highlight, which is a difficult one, difficult one to assess in many ways. Can bowling your eyes out at receiving a hurling helmet as a, as a child really be a person's sports highlight? Or was that visceral reaction to child's rea- uh, rejection of the emotional ups and downs of a life spent supporting the Cork Hurling and Camogie teams? Maybe in the eyes of seven-year-old Maeve, there was an understanding that handing over your emotional well-being to a team of strangers following a white ball around a field is not the way to self-fulfilment. I'd like to say that I saw a lot of maturity in that act of self-protection, so kudos to you, Maeve. Sporting knowledge, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but I do believe, Maeve, that your mam is related to Declan Kidney. Whoa. So it doesn't, yes. get, it doesn't get any more knowledgeable than that. In retrospect, I even detect a family likeness in his raucous, hilarious and extremely well-attended press conferences, which often left us rolling in the aisles, of course, as we all remember. So to complete the, the picture, uh, I just have one more quick question to ask of you, uh, Maeve, mm-hmm. this morning. What mm-hmm. sports person would you be in an alternate universe? Oh, um, Gennady Golovkin. Triple G. <laughs> Triple G, the most devastating puncher in world boxing at the moment. Totally. Right. He is the best. Like, zero defeats out of whatever, nearly many, 40 many fights. Yeah. fights. Yeah. He's amazing. I wish I was him. I can't even win an argument with myself. <laughs> but he's definitely my, my sporting hero. I love him. C- can we, can we and ask? And he's a middleweight, right? He's like, he not is. too yeah. heavy, not too light. Ideal. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, as uh, this sporting life grand marshal, I'm just going to tot all this up and Yes, mm-hmm. it's coming to me now. I see a number. Mm-hmm. It's in the 70s. <laughs> oh. It's 72 <laughs> marks out of 100. <laughs> Maeve wow. Higgins, this has been and indeed continues to be your sporting life. Are you happy with 72, <laughs> Maeve? Yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm that's, that's a 1 1 in college. Or, you know, a B3 in secondary school, whichever one you prefer. <laughs> but listen, thanks for being absolutely amazing. First guest of the new series. A round of applause, please, for Maeve Higgins. Thank you, Maeve. Yay, thank thanks, you. Maeve. Great to chat to you. <laughs> thanks, lad. In honour of Justin Trudeau's trip to Ireland, that was Canada's finest, the band with the night they drove old Dixie down from the last waltz in 1978. Hope Justin likes that. Murph wanted to play Ironic by Alanis Morissette then, but I was having none of it. I'd voted again. How great was Maeve Higgins? I love that idea of amassing a group of friends by going on friend dates with them and then choosing the best ones. Mm. I think I might freshen up my own pool of mates with that particular method. There's a bit of dead wood to be cast off. God knows, there's a lot of dead wood everywhere, uh, Owen. But uh, yeah, I'm just... I don't know how cutthroat you can be, you know, with your old buddies from St. Benildas from 25 years ago or whenever the hell it was. Well, 20 years ago, I'm sorry. I, I struggle to drop baits from my Facebook account, so I definitely <laughs> struggle in real life. 51551 is the number to text and Second Captain Sunday. You can tweet us at Second Captains. Cushion a man says, lads, eight aside football tournament in Tullamore back in the day. Players on each team had to be from the same family. Teams came from far and near. So you're oh, not far off there, but you can make tournaments out of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> out of big families, all right. It's, uh, today's Munster Hurling Final between Cork and Clare has drummed up a load of excitement, but it's going to be doing well to match the drama of what went down when the counties met in Thurlis 40 years ago. 45,000 people paid into Semple Stadium that day for the 1977 Munster Final. Unfortunately for the GAA, a good chunk of that money was stolen in an armed raid that took place. Yes, this did happen during the game, in fact. I'll let Ortiz Mick Dunn describe the scene early in the second half. 
some trouble in here in the tunnel. I see a lot of guards rushing into the tunnel. We can't see it from where we are in the back of the stand. Referee Noel Dalton having a look there to see what's happening. But this is a packed Semple Stadium. You can see some of the guardy there making their way towards the tunnel, whatever's happening down there. Well, what was happening down there was that some armed robbers were making off with the GAA's hard-earned gate receipts. The first ever presenter of the Sunday game, Murph's uncle Jim Kearney, was there in Thurless on the day. Jim, welcome to Second Cup on Sunday. Yeah, hi fellas, uh, good day to you all. And uh, on a weekend like this, I must say all these massive big fixtures in the hurling and football, they, you know, they evoke a lot of memories for me of you know, clashes between all these counties. In days when I was working at a lot of these matches in the 70s and early 80s particularly, uh, including Clare and Cork, I, 1977 for me was a particularly busy year. I was all over Ireland at matches, 78, and the following year the Sunday game started. So it was all happening. But going back to uh, 77, one memory I have of, of that day in, in Thurlis, Afterwards, even though it was a very, very serious thing that happened, and even though there was danger from raiders and everything else, the reporting of the of the of the game in the in the newspapers, uh, you know, in the days that followed, particularly the day after the the raid, uh, was extraordinary. Really, I have a particular memory of Raymond Smith, you know, who wrote very colourful stuff in the Irish Independent, wrote all those great books about uh, hurling and football as well. Um, he was the only one I think who came out and quoted, um, well, he didn't name the girl. He said a young girl that he'd met behind the ground, is saying that the raiders had cork accents. You know, well. I don't know if the truth the truth of that or whatever. So a lot of it was greeted with right amusement. I mean, for instance, it's, it's very funny that a puncher of Clareman disappointed afterwards said he had no sympathy for the GA because he felt he was robbed uh, himself at the gate uh, because it cost him two pounds to go in and he thought that was extortionate. But just bear in mind, lads, you know, there were 44,000 people watching the match. There was something like 48,000 pounds, as it was at the time, uh, collected at the gate. There were only 24,500 stolen. They didn't take it all because the Raiders didn't have enough bags. If they had more bags, they would have got it all. And I, I'm told that that 24,000 is now worth something like 300,000 euro. So, you know, maybe a man had, had a point. But I, I just think looking back on now 40 years later, it was just extraordinary. You know, it, it almost became a, a butt of humour, but admittedly, black humour. This must have been a huge story. That's a massive sum of money in anybody's language, Jim. This must have been a and huge f- story yeah, at the time. And for it to happen, you know, at one of the, the landmark GA games of the year. Yeah. Yes, and, and the, the, there was an extraordinary atmosphere at the match because... Uh, and a, a massive security as well, as you can imagine, because both the President of Ireland and uh, uh, the Taoiseach were there. Now, Jack Lynch, of course, a legendary name himself in, in, in football and hurling. He won All-Ireland medals in, in, in both, and I think won All-Ireland every medal for, for, for five years from around 1940 up to 1945. Uh, he was there. And the President of Ireland, then Patrick Hillary, who was also a, a very keen GA fan, and he was maybe known more as a man who loved golf, but he, he was a clear man. He was from down around uh, the Spanish Point area, that whole lovely part of, of West Clare, the Spanish Point. The, the security there that day was extraordinary. Not alone did you have the president and the teacher, you had the president of the GA as well, Con Murphy himself, was a great hurler who had won a pile of Ireland medals for court. But you also had either four or five, not sure how many, but there were either four or five ministers there as well. The, the, the big news story, of course, was the raid, the danger that, you know, there was a danger there. And there was a boy who was either eight or nine years of age. He was in the counting room as they called it uh, at the time. He was the son, I think, of Ty Crowley, the Munster Council Treasurer, who was there with Seamus Power, great, great Waterford hurler. He was a Munster Council official at the time, and a style man called Timmy Grace. And Seamus Power was quoted, I think, in the Irish Independence in a chat with, with Raymond Smith as saying that 
And he was a powerful, strong man, Seamus Power. And he, would, he was fearless on the pitch and he would have been fearless on the day as well. He said he thought, he gave serious thought to tackling the Raiders at the time. But because of the presence of the boy in the room, he said there was too much of a danger. And also, while they looked at what appearing to be revolvers, he wasn't convinced that the guns were real, that they may have been fake. But he could not... Re- that, that's why I think he was summoning up the courage to maybe tackle them. But uh, he could not do that because of his concern for the boy, which was entirely admirable and, admirable and entirely sensible as well, of course. Did they ever catch the culprit, Jim? Or even get any... The culprits, probably, or even get any leads? Yes, well, I understand that, that the money was never recovered and that there was no action uh, taken. And it wasn't mentioned. There was so much going on at the time, you know, in, in Ireland at, at, at that time, the troubles and, you know, there was just so much going on. It, it was, in many ways, uh, and I'm, I'm not flipping and saying this, or anything, it was just another story, really. Uh, and the, the, the black humour continued for a long, long time afterwards. And, you know, that, that was extraordinary in itself. But I understand that, that there were no arrests. Uh, they got away, actually. Well, it was very carefully planned. Uh, they were in what they called the practice field, close to, 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 to the pitch. And the, the gates there were open, as all gates are open at half time. They would know that, too. So they, they knew the hurling protocols. And they came in. And there were two cars used. Um, and it's interesting, really, the independence actually said it was... a. a a Ford Escort, the, uh, the Irish press said it was a Cortina. Now, when you add that up, Lance, to the, to the, the story that they were, the Raiders were speaking with Cork accents, if they really were Cork people, you've got to admire them. They were supporting local industry when they were supporting <laughs> Ford. <laughs> Jim, fantastic memories. Thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Yeah, Great Tish- to be with you, lad. Taoiseach and President present done, but everyone just had a big laugh. <laughs> yeah, hilarious incident, that, all right? Yeah, that's it from us. Hope you enjoyed the show this morning. Marion Finucane is up next. We're going to be back next Sunday with the brilliant Pat Short. In the meantime, you can catch us broadcasting daily from our own studios at setandcaptains.com. Thanks very much to Ruth Kennington on sound today. Mark Morgan and Simon Hick produced. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks so. Thanks very much for listening. And, of course, we're getting in touch. Have a good one. Talk to you next Sunday. Second cap, first cap, and whatever. <laughs>